Greetings and a warm welcome to the inaugural 2024 Dallas Express bi-weekly show. I'm your host, Sarah Subiata Bennett, and it's our mission to leave an indelible mark on our city, propelling it towards a better and brighter future. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to introduce Scott Ackerson, a beacon of hope in the fight against homelessness. Scott's exemplary leadership as the Executive Vice President of Prospera Housing Community Services and his extensive background with Health Management Associates and Haven for Hope in San Antonio, Texas, positions him as a hero of the homeless crisis. He joins us to share invaluable insights on planning effective responses to homelessness, ensuring our city's growth and prosperity. But that's not all. Later, we visit with the extraordinary Dr. Christopher Babb, co-owner of The Kinetic Chain. His holistic approach to wellness as a symphony of mind and body has made him a go-to authority for top-tier athletes in various sports. Yet, Dr. Babb is much more than a health virtuoso. He's also a gifted artist, crafting bespoke paintings that find their homes in private collections. Stay tuned as we delve into these captivating discussions that promise to enlighten and inspire. Join me as we enrich our community and foster the spirit of Dallas. Scott, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know you're you're piping in from San Antonio. You have an incredibly robust background in helping to address homelessness, uh, different types of, I, I guess, providing different types of answers and solutions to all forms of trauma. Is there any way you can give an overview of the highlights of your experience for our viewers and listeners so that they're able to have an appreciation of under and understanding of how you develop and formulate responses to these certain types of initiatives like homelessness? Sure. Uh, so I started my career in child welfare and uh, the first part of my career was in direct services as a child care worker. I quickly realized that I didn't always agree with the, the decisions that were being made at the administration. So I always vowed that when I became one of those people, I, I wouldn't make those types of decisions and I would actually talk to the people. Ended up moving out to Los Angeles where I worked at a residential treatment center for children. And uh, the children I worked with were predominantly inner city from uh, East LA, South Central LA. So kind of learned a lot about cultural competency, cultural competency and social work. About that time is when trauma-informed care was starting to come out. Uh, there was some early work out of New York City um, and then during that time, I ended up moving back to my hometown of St. Paul, Minnesota after L.A. and then ended up in San Antonio. Um, in San Antonio, I had the, the opportunity to work for Casey Family Programs, which is the largest operating foundation in the United States. And there I worked with young adults emancipating from foster care, really helping to develop programming for them. And that's where I, I really delved into uh, trauma-informed care, looking at the backgrounds of these young adults that were now 17 to 23 years old, um, extremely high incidence of sex abuse, um, violence, um, neglect, and just to really see the impact that life had on them and the trauma that had them, it really kind of pushed me to learn more and to delve deeper. So I did that work for about 10 years, and then I was asked by uh, the, uh, the local children's shelter here, they were asked by the, the uh, children's court judges to put together a residential treatment center for children here in San Antonio because we were shipping children all over the state, taking them out of community, taking them away from their families. 
And so I was given the opportunity to develop the programming for the residential treatment center. And when I asked the, the CEO what my parameters were, he said, you've got a building, I want you to do the rest. Working at the children's shelter, I then had an opportunity to go work for San Ministries. San Ministries was a, a, the largest homeless service provider in San Antonio. And I really, at the time, I didn't have a desire to work with adults. I became a social worker to work in child welfare. But I heard about this, uh, this new project on the horizon that was called Haven for Hope. And it sounded like an interesting opportunity to really do some more program development, something I really enjoyed in my career. So I took the job with Sam Ministries, knowing that they were going to be the largest provider on the campus because they were providing all the residential services. We moved on to the Haven for Hope campus after about three years of planning. Shortly thereafter, I was um, asked to join the Haven team. And that's where I really started delving into a lot of the work around evidence-based practices, primarily due to the fact that the early programming at the Haven for Hope campus was that of behavior modification. That's absolutely terrific. As you know, I'm a huge proponent, proponent of everything that the Haven for Hope is doing in San Antonio. Would you describe to our audience exactly what trauma-informed care is? I do have an appreciation for it because I did spend some time at the Meadows in Arizona to treat my own trauma, but I do think that the audience would like that type of understanding as well. Oftentimes when we think of people people experiencing homelessness or uh, mental illness, addiction, instead of asking what happened to you, we ask what's wrong with you. We really should be asking what happened to you and what, what life circumstances brought you to this place. And if you look at it statistically, and particularly around people experiencing homelessness, um, studies suggest that well over 90% of females experiencing homelessness have been victims of violence. Um, couple of studies, over 60% of females experiencing homelessness were sexually abused before their, their fifth birthday. So we obviously have high incidents of trauma. And by the way, uh, for these same types of things for men are horribly underreported. So many, many similarities uh, across genders. But what we see the impact of that is um, it, it sort of layman's terms, it, it messes with the wiring in the brain and you begin to see the world differently and uh, experience the world differently. And you, unbeknownst to you, have triggers that might set off some of those traumatic reactions of those trauma triggers that elicit those behaviors. Um, that's really kind of a way oversimplifies way of saying it. Problem that is that for too long, we haven't recognized the prevalence of trauma, especially amongst people experiencing homelessness and, 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 and then children growing up in the child welfare system as well. So we have not done an effective job um, at treating trauma. Uh, that's really was the motivation for me to get into uh, trauma-informed care when we started in child welfare, because having worked in residential treatment for years before actually learning about trauma-informed care, I saw behavior modification and behavior modification works, but it works in a controlled environment but it never really gets to the core of why you're behaving that way. And if we don't get to the core of what, where those behaviors are coming from, where is that addiction coming from, and, and those types of things, then we're really not gonna find the solutions. So uh, the idea of being trauma-informed and utilizing evidence-based practices, again, it's not saying what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you and how can we support you to, to maximize your full potential. 
I know whenever you joined the Haven for Hope in San Antonio, you really were a huge proponent of this trauma-informed model. And I know now they've adopted all of those different types of systems that you pioneered. What would you do differently in a similar response to help address homeless here in Dallas? I think the three major things is we, we have to get communities to stop fighting over finite resources and, and really start to um, partner, partner for the good of people, for the good of the community. And then those collaborations can't be the usual characters. It can't just be government and the nonprofit sector. We have to include hospital systems, EMS, PD, the jails. It has to be a multi-sector approach because all of these different um, sectors are touching people experiencing homelessness and are costing money to the city and county. And then with that, we also have to begin to look at homelessness through a systemic lens. Uh, too often we see homelessness as sort of this homogeneous phenomena that's just right there. And what I tell people all the time is homeless intervention does not end homelessness. Homeless intervention only ends homelessness for those that are already homeless. For us to really end homelessness, we have to really start looking at the up, upstream interventions. We have to get busy on development of affordable housing, actually all types of housing in most urban centers. We have to look at strategies for keeping rental costs down. You know, we have to look at some of the historical issues as to why people are experiencing homelessness. There's an overrepresentation of people of color in the homeless systems, and there's historical reasons for that. The debate over the location of the facilities is something that is some is a huge topic of conversation. They some people are saying, oh, th this needs to be situated about 20 to 30 miles from downtown. Others are saying, nope, this needs to be right in the heart of downtown because it is a collection of services in a one-stop shop, essentially. Would you clarify the advantages and disadvantages of both of those options? Our historic model, and I've, I've said this for many years now, is if you go downtown to the urban core, find the most dilapidated building in the urban core, you found, you've probably found the emergency shelter. I mean, that was the model that we practiced for years in the United States, and it really speaks to the value we put on people experiencing homelessness. Subpar facilities are fine. It's a shelter. It's good enough. I think that historically, we really put things in the urban core for those reasons, and then it becomes difficult to remove them from the urban core because people will argue that, well, that's where the homeless are, so that's where we need the services. So I, I, I don't think the, the urban core model is necessarily the only model. The other downside of that model, it, it really can um, inhibit um, downtown development, downtown redevelopment, the the impact of the financial sector and the downtown areas, tourism and all of those types of things often can suffer if you're if you're basing all your services in the urban core. You've recently joined, at least from what I understand, a, a very prominent architectural firm where you've taken a leadership role there. You're, you know, by training a social worker and now you're working at an incredible architectural firm in Texas that not focuses on just the architectural elements, but truly emphasizes the trauma-informed design principles. Can you explain what that looks like? 
I was recruited to work at uh, West East Design Group. And the reason why is they opened what they're calling a social impact studio. And I was approached to run the social impact studio. And uh, believe me, the irony is not lost on me that they're a social worker working for an architectural studio. So the social impact studio really focuses on um, places and spaces that that have a positive impact on people. So we do projects around child welfare, um, veterans, people experiencing homelessness. A couple of the tenets that we've really put into place, one with the emerging data around the impact of trauma on people and, and congregate shelter, we're really staying away from doing any kind of congregate shelter. Um, one of the reasons people won't access shelter from the street is because they're going to be staying with two or 300 people, all suffering with uh, homelessness, addiction, mental illness. People never let down their fight or flight. And so it's really not a healing environment. We need to provide people healing, not just a roof over their head. And that's the way that we're going to help overcome homelessness for people that are already homeless. But again, we have to do those upstream interventions around affordable housing and mitigating issues of poverty and those types of things. You know, if we do those things well, we do to them together, we really can end homelessness in the United States. Wow. Well, that's certainly positive and uplifting to think about ending homelessness in the United States because it's a crisis. So Scott, would you mind telling our audience what inspired you to initiate such a significant paradigm shift in addressing therapeutic needs via evidence-based practices? So the, the reality of what happened, I was asked um, by our second CEO to, um, what we saw was kind of a revolving door. We had the restoration center that had um, uh, addiction recovery, so sobering and detox but we didn't have a residential facility for that. So I was tasked with putting together an addiction recovery program. I'm not an expert on addiction recovery, but I brought together people that were, and we put together a program called the in-house recovery program. About a year out, we were seeing really great success with that program. And so my boss came back to me and he said, I want you to make the whole campus recovery. So a 12 step approach is not going to necessarily work with people experiencing homelessness and i knew that but my boss tasked me with something and so like all great scholars i went to google and i i queried uh, homeless recovery and i came across one article that took the evidence-based tenets of addiction recovery and mental health recovery and sort of transposed them on homelessness generally and it was absolutely fascinating so I started cold calling all the authors and everybody that was cited in the article. And I had the luck to get in touch with a woman out of Yale University. Her name's Janice Tondura. So she was the only one that returned my call, agreed to come and meet with me and really became my mentor around recovery-oriented systems of care, person-centered planning and peer support integration. Those are the three components of the campus that we were able to effectively integrate, and those were game changers. So in the work in Dallas, I mean, if I were working here, I would push all of those initiatives because they work and they're, they're person-centered and effective. Scott, thank you so much for sharing all of this. It's quite valuable insight, and I pray that our community leaders uh, 
tap you and your expertise and this architectural firm to provide and shed some light and leadership and guidance to us here in Dallas because it's something that that very much needs addressing. Well, thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with you, Sarah. And I agree. Um, Dallas is a, a great city, and uh, I know there's some things happening that can be great for the downtown area. But again, community needs to be economically vibrant, but we also need to take care of our people. And I, I think Dallas has the spirit to do that now. So I would welcome the opportunity to work with you and, and Dallas on this important venture. Thank you so much, Scott, truly. Hello. It, it helps me, but what I'm feeling right now is okay. But if I were to sit just flat, my upper muscles up here mm -hmm. start to cramp. Gotcha. Kind of in the, but not, they don't seize like they used to. So today we'll hit a little bit of the dry needling. We'll do the hands-on work um, and the shock wave that you're a fan of. Um, my physical therapist mm -hmm. does this dry needling but she leaves them in there. Yeah, and that's a different technique. I've found that just the idea of leaving the needle in stresses people out. So that technique, where it's still effective, and you know, in some cases, if someone comes in very acute, yeah, I'll still do that and let the needles kind of cook there for a little bit. Yeah, it yeah, just yeah. kind of keeps that area open, still draw some of that um, inflammatory process to the area. Mm -hmm. Basically, these tools, you'll kind of see that as I rub across the tissue, it just starts going a little red. And so it just brings a little more blood flow to the area. And so we're just kind of creating a little bit of oh, kind of that superficial kind of generalized microtrauma. And so once I start to see it kind of going into what's called patika or a little bit of micro bruising through there, that's when I usually will stop. So this one, so you're aware, is basically ultrasound on steroids. Basically, it bombards the area with, with that sound wave, which kind of promotes the healing of the tissue through a little bit of disruption. Bizarre, isn't it? You know, we call it sports chiropractic, but we work hand in hand with the medical community, orthos, pain management doctors, neurosurgeons. They, they refer to us, we refer to them. Yep. Because, you know, I'm not egotistical enough to think that I can fix everything, I can do everything. It takes a village yep. a lot of times to get it someone does. better. Yeah. And if we're trying to get you better as quickly as possible, you know, we need to have a good team around us. Because if you trust me, then if I have a team around me I trust as well, then that by proxy allows you to have more comfort going to a referral or seeing mm -hmm. a payment or doctor or doing something like that if needed.